Have you had a busy week in the market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9fin, where we bring you the need-to-know information on documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high-yield leveraged loans and restructuring spaces. I'm Kat Hidalgo, a reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today. We'll be taking a look at ratio numerators, touching on multiversity. We'll talk about COP26, touching on Tiva and Chem1. And we do our deep discussion on earnings today, discussing a host of your favourite issuers. But first, the deals in the market. That's right, the bond market is completely dead, with not a single deal travelling through. In loans, things are a little more active, though still far from the blockbuster Q4 bankers were optimistically predicting when speaking to Ninefin back in September. T-Mobile Netherlands is the market behemoth, out with a 2 billion euro TLB. Nielsen IQ at the other end is out with a 150 million euro add-on. Syntagon and Creton are out with around a billion euros of financing apiece, but everyone's eyes are on Ultra Electronics. Disagreement has been rife amongst buy-siders who are split over ESG concerns related to the company's products. While one buy-sider said, let's not beat around the bush here, they build machinery that kills people, after they told Ninefin they hadn't even looked at the deal based on these concerns. A second buy-sider called that stance pathetic, countering that only a limited amount of revenue, less than 2%, goes into non-offensive weapons. He also told Ninefin he really liked business. We now come to the part of the podcast where we do our covenant close-up and today we have Caitlin Carey with us who has recently been promoted to the position Head of Covenant Research. Thank you so much for having me, Kat. So today we're going to be talking about ratio numerators uh, just to kick off and more to kind of give um, our listeners advice on certain areas where they should be really focusing and then we're going to talk a little bit about a few wins um, that we've seen in the market on this front. Yeah, sure. So um, I think that, you know, what a lot of people focus on a lot of the time when they think about issuers and borrowers sort of gaming their leverage ratio tests, they think about ways that borrowers and issuers can inflate the EBITDA figure, so the denominator. So you make um, EBITDA bigger, all of a sudden your leverage looks much lower, much nicer. Um, But the other way that um, investors and borrowers can get um, a more favorable looking number there for their leverage is to play with a bit what is in the numerator of the ratio. So so what actually gets counted as debt or senior secured debt for purposes of the ratio. Um, And I think that something to note is that even though, you know, ratios are called very similar things from document to document, it's not that there's necessarily standard definitions for what goes into these ratios. Um, So for instance, something that is called a consolidated net leverage ratio or a senior secured net leverage ratio may look very different from document to document. Um, For instance, I've seen senior secured net leverage ratio where it actually includes both first and second lien debt. I've seen senior secured net leverage ratio where it's defined um, broadly to to include any secured debt um, in, in the numerator. But then I think, you know, the way I've seen this drafted most commonly is that the senior secured net leverage ratio um, these days only includes debt that's secured on a first lien basis on the collateral. 
And so, it, you know, essentially, um, you know, the collateral package for your bonds or your loans may be fairly limited. It may be a soft security package that only covers some intercompany loans and shares and uh, bank accounts um, without any sort of hard asset security. And if this is the case, um, then it means that your numerator of your ratio is only going to include debt that's secured on that same package with you. Um, but to the extent that there's uh, other, you know, sort of loans or other financing that's secured on your real estate assets or other assets of the group, maybe you've uh, acquired um, a target entity and kept their existing financing structure in place, even if that's secured on those target assets or, or your real estate or, or whatever other assets, um, that would not be part of your senior secured net leverage ratio if it's not secured on the same collateral package. So, so I think that's something that people get confused about sometimes. They think, oh, you know, senior secured could mean, you know, secured on X or secured on Y. No, in this case, it's, it's, it's generally going to be what's secured on the, the same collateral um, as your, your TLB or, or senior secured notes. Um, so so that's, that's one point. I think another point um, is that, you know, you also have to check what's in, in, in your debt sort of like full stop. Um, so, you know, there may be a definition of something like consolidated total debt, or even in the definition of indebtedness that will have some exclusions to it. Um, we've seen deals where they've excluded all capitalized leases from um, being counted towards these leverage ratios, both the total and the senior secured. Um, we've seen deals where, to the extent that there's any sort of grandfathered, um, you know, lines of credit or, you know, debt being rolled over into the new structure, that that, that is not considered debt for purposes of these leverage ratio calculations. Um, so, you know, you may be thinking that like, oh, I, you know, it's, it's easy to calculate like what their leverage ratio is. Um, but it, it, it can be very complicated and, and these um, exclusions can make a big difference to, to what the, the actual number is um, and also then perhaps make it easier for the issuer borrower to access its sort of like, you know, covenant baskets because of that. Any example you can provide here? I think one thing that we've been seeing sort of that's a contentious exclusion um, is revolver drawings. Um, so we've seen um, a lot in recent, especially sponsor-backed deals, um, issuers excluding um, any revolving drawings, or sometimes it, it's just limited to um, revolver drawings to finance working capital needs. Um, and essentially they're just saying, nope, that doesn't count. That doesn't count as, as debt for purposes of this leverage ratio. The other thing that's, you know, sort of even, even rarer that um, I think think I might have talked about sort of recently in the context of, of modulaire um, is the ability to exclude um, debt that is um, incurred under the key debt baskets. Um, so, so modulaire had something where um, if debt was incurred not using your ratio capacity, but using sort of other baskets, general basket, numerical baskets, um, then that would not count towards your ratios. Um, and it's interesting because they took a provision that's generally there in order to allow for concurrent use of ratio-based 
and numerical flexibility. So something that says, you know, on the same day, you know, you can use whatever headrooms left under your ratio base capacity, and on top of that, you can use your numerical baskets. And instead they just said, no, numerical baskets, whenever they're used, you know, if they were used like t t six months ago, a year ago, um, whatever is in your numerical baskets isn't gonna count towards your, your ratio. And I think the problem with that is that this same ratio is used not just for debt incurrence, but also for things like testing portability. Um, and, and that could be really dangerous because it could give the issuer the ability to exercise portability even if its true leverage is significantly higher than the portability leverage ratio. Um, so that's, that's a bit worrying. Um, but I think what I wanted to tell you, Kat, is that it's not all gloom and doom. Like we have seen um, some, some deals where this has gotten pushed back. For instance, that last point that I talked about that was seen in, in Modulaire, um, the same language came out in the Multiversity deal, um, which um, you know came out a, a week or two later than, than Modulaire, um, also in October. Um, and Multiversity, they actually took that provision out, so they reverted back to the normal way that, that ratios would be calculated. Um, and in terms of the exclusion of, of revolving debt um, or working capital, um, the Iliad deal in October um, had originally been marketed with um, an exclusion from the ratios for any revolving drawings to finance working capital needs, um, but that also got pushed back. Next up, we have Please Raise Responsibly, our ESG section. Today, we've got our lovely ESG analyst, Jack David, with us today. Hi, Jack. Hi, Kat. Um, so, you've been following COP26, I hear, is that correct? Yeah, been following intently. It's not been the smoothest of build-ups to COP26, I suppose, uh, with the global energy crisis. And, of course, this has kind of dampened a lot of countries' pledges in terms of their energy transition plans. For example, the pledge to phase out coal didn't really hit the mark with China, India and the US failing to sign, which makes it quite a large proportion of global coal usage. We saw a number of major car uh, manufacturers failing to sign the deal on banning the sale of diesel and petrol vehicles. Um, then on a positive note, we did see 80, more than 80 countries pledge to cut methane emissions I think you're going to talk a little bit about pledges, but what, what's the situation there? I mean, even if we were to follow these pledges that you've just spoken about, like what does that mean for our future? If we do manage to hit the pledges that have been decided on last week, uh, the UN Secretary General has warned that this will put us on track for 2.4 degrees of warning, which would still be pretty catastrophic. Did the UK do anything in particular to kind of take a centre stage or did they make any kind of interesting pledges or claims? They have led the way with a plan to um, create the world's first net zero financial services centre. Although this, this plan does focus on the sort of methods we already have in place, which is increasing climate disclosures. Um, and there's, there's a growing debate around this in general with our approach to climate change. Uh, we currently rely on the so-called voluntary market-led strategies, which uh, for the last six decades, we've really trusted the market to address climate change uh, trends such as CSR, ESG, obviously, um, often touted as win-win situations where we can both grow economically and build an ecologically sustainable world. 
So, I mean, proponents of this assert that governments can't really be trusted to make these crucial decisions. For example, whether nuclear should be something we invest in. Policies such as the EU taxonomy have come into fire for this reason. So the argument is really whether the government should, should be allowed to make a decision about those those kind of things or whether that should be done to the market. And where does uh, high yield and leverage loans come into all of this? So, of course, leverage finance has been slow to adopt ESG strategies with equities and investment grade providing the lion's share of investment in things like climate tech. We may see a growing number of climate laggards in this space. For example, companies that may become distressed due to failure to keep abreast of climate trends. We may see CO2 intensive companies going private in order to avoid avoid mandatory reporting um, that's required of public companies. Uh, We might also see smaller companies picking up some of the CO2 slack from those in the public eye. For example, um, in big oil and gas, um, we've seen examples of them selling off uh, some of the oil field licenses to smaller outfits, um, which is kind of passing the baton of CO2 emissions. Thinking about how um, issuers might might be affected by these changing policies and and public opinions, what have you seen there? Yeah, what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is the usual patchy and selective data from issuers. For example, we saw Tiva fail to include the Scope 3 emissions target within its SPTs, despite the second-party opinion stating that any financial instrument they issue should have uh, this, and without it, it would be of limited materiality. Tiva responded to our request for comment and said they felt like Um, A scope three target was premature for them. I think in light of the urgency we've seen from global leaders at COP26, you can't help but feel this shows a lack of awareness or a lack of ambition from Tiva. Um, And as such, investors might question how well aligned they are to these these policy shifts. Another one would be Chem1 issuance uh, last week. So this deal, um, I think more than anything, just on a macro level, um, it's easy to kind of get, get stuck in the weeds of the emissions and how well they're doing on different social factors and um, the financials, of course. But in this case, investors might want to question, um, you know, from from a higher level, whether they should be res- well, whether they want to be responsible for funding the growth um, of a company that's uh, producing um, quite highly toxic plastic, such as PVC, uh, and the company has overtly stated that. Its growth plan is based around um, entering emerging markets and increasing production in these these markets. It's of course a pretty severe plastic waste problem in the world, so need to wonder whether investment in these companies and increased production in emerging markets is a good thing, where there might be local viable alternatives available. We have come to the part of the um, podcast where we uh, have our deep discussion. Today I'm with our lovely editor, Chris Haffenden. Thanks for being with us, Chris. Hi guys, good to see you. And I am with one of our best credit analysts, Ben Hoskin. <laughs> Thanks for being with us, Ben. Hey, Cap, pleasure as always. So I've roped you both in for a very difficult topic, especially as it's so early doors, but we wanted to talk about earnings because I'm sure uh, all of our listeners are waiting with bated breath on, on, on some of the key trends that are coming out. So I guess, Ben, kick us off. At what, what have you seen from the earnings period so far? 
like you say, it's early doors. We've had about 120 odd come through so far for, for high yield companies so far. Sort of headline figures, roughly sales are doing well. They're sort of rebounding 10% on average, looking at the median, because um, there's quite a big sort of jump in quite a few numbers just because they're going off. Uh, you know, the prior year comparable is is quite a small number or very COVID affected. Uh, and then same with EBITDA was um, up roughly around 12% on average looking at the median. Um, and then of those companies, the margins are roughly flat, uh, which I guess is, is unsurprising because the main um, focus of attention, I guess, is all around sort of supply chain issues, uh, cost inflation. Um, it, it's worth noting that it is still early days, and I think there's there's still a lot of that to actually feed through into earnings. Uh, so it's hard to make any sort of definitive judgments about that yet. Um, but it, it's certainly something we're keeping an eye on. So in terms of sort of results, I've been looking at um, you know retailers. There's obviously the the the, the key sort of issues there in terms of. Um, cost inflation in the UK we've got the the HGV drivers shortage which was something that Iceland in particular keep um, keep citing and mentioning there was also a, a national minimum wage increase in April which has sort of put pressure on margins there as well um, I think one sort of main what one quite interesting pocket of the market was automotive manufacturers again it's it's very unsurprising about what we're going to be talking about it's it's in the news flow every day around semiconductor shortages. So of the few that have come through there, sales are off around 3%, but then EBITDA is down around 20% on average, um, and then margins are falling, you know, sort of low single digits there as well. Another area within sort of automotives that was quite interesting is, is sort of the, the working capital accounts. Um, so Jaguar Land Rover in particular, there was a huge payables unwind of, I think, around a billion. Um, which is obviously just because of these production shutdowns. They're, they're not being able to, to make the cars, build the cars, because they don't have the components to do so. Um, and therefore, there's that big unwind in, in the working capital account. Um, and this is something I would expect to see you know, more broadly across the industry. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's, there's been a few things. I suppose Ben's touched on one, which is there are also some UK-specific factors. So uh, we haven't had the numbers yet, but they've been flagged quite a lot for Baparan and about the difficulty they've had in terms of not just the questions around, but it's also about the labour force and about migrant workers and about uh, you know, getting these extra uh, licences to come in and get some butchers to come in from mm -hmm. overseas. Um, I suppose the other thing is just thinking about splitting them down into, you know, we've had energy cost rises, so sharp rises in sort of nat natural gas prices in particular, so those industries which are very heavily energy in, um, intensive, so have, are, are we going to start to see some of that filter through into Q3 or whether Q4, um, Q4 numbers and whether they're actually being hedged on some of that. Um, we have seen quite a bit of reversal on the natural gas prices in the last few weeks, but that would, you know, sort of whether that would have impacted Q3 or whether that's been more into Q4. Um, there's also the question about raw material prices and whether the ability of these companies to actually pass those costs on and whether there's actually a lag or not. And again, it comes down to hedging and about their inventory and whether they actually got ahead of this or this coming. Uh, and a lot of this also depends on the where they are in terms of the production cycle. So if you are, are you able to pass on those prices 
um, onto your uh, onto your customers. So how much pricing power do you have? It feels like at the moment a lot of these companies claim that they do have significant pricing power, but the question is whether that will continue beyond the next quarter or two. Yeah, I'd say a good example of that would be Dexco, which they said that they've got quite strong pricing power because they sell parts not to um, not to huge auto manufacturers, but to smaller, more specialised uh, factories. Um, so they also have a lot of pricing power to be able to pass through costs. Um, they, they, they also have um, strong positions, so they say, with, with their suppliers on the other side of that as well. I spoke to a buy-sider who listened in on the call, and, and he's very happy with their performance so far their ability to pass through costs um, of their raw materials. Um, Dexco is very reliant on steel particularly, which has seen a huge increase this year um, in pricing. One final thing to consider is that uh, I was speaking to one buy-sider who said the full impact of the raw materials increases that we've been seeing this year have not yet hit, and um, we won't uh, have those until Q4 earnings come out. Um, so we'll have that to look forward to in 2022. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, certainly ProFine, they were sort of blindsided a little bit, I think, by the extent of the price increases. So they only really started implementing sort of cost pass-through programs in, in sort of June. By that time, they were already playing catch-up on, you know, two or three months of inflation. So again, yeah, it comes back to how much they can pass on, how quickly they can do it, and then what, what you know, how much that's going to eat into their margins. Yeah, I mean, there's... There's also some seasonality to it as well. So some retailers such as Matalan are very much at the point of time in the year, sort of September through to October, where they're looking to build up their stock for the Christmas season. And Matalan have said that the supply chain issues have delayed their autumn winter stock by five to six weeks, which means that the timing of when they're actually trying to sell that stock as it comes in could actually maybe impact and cannibalise some of the sales that they're actually looking at in January as well. So it's actually managing that. Uh, those issues. Uh, we also saw Diebold Nixdorf, the ATM manufacturers, say that they actually had to defer about 90 million of third quarter earnings for future periods because of supply chain issues and also they uh, they were saying this would actually have quite an impact on their uh, 21 outlook and they thought that this would actually also push into 22. And another one that we picked up on was also Ontex. Um, which saw its EBITDA fall by 29% during the quarter, and they blame most of that on substantially higher raw material prices. So it feels like they don't have that ability to pass that on. Yeah, and then I think just, just from looking at that data, one more pocket that was, was quite interesting was, um, again, sort of unsurprisingly, but transportation and logistics has done very well. Um, so, again, it's a fairly small sample, but sales are up around 40%. Um, EBITDA sort of similar and, and then margins are doing well sort of high single digits there I mean there has been some big reversals recently though this will affect through to Q4 and things such as the Baltic dry in index and some of the sort of shipping costs and freight costs are starting to come down even though there's still huge actual supply chain issues you know the, the stories about 100 vessels anchored off Long Beach and the difficulties of processing those through the ports and there also has been some pushback in the US regarding the amount of money that some of these um, container businesses are making and about the chances that they might actually impose some super taxes on them. So that could be a, a sort of ongoing pressure. So I don't think it's all good news for the, mm. for the shipping companies. There's a bit of, they're very much in the spotlight and they could actually be impacted a little bit more sort of going forward. 
that's it for today's episode of Cloud9Fin. Thanks very much to Caitlin Carey, to Jack David, to Ben Hoskin, to Chris Hackenden, and most of all, thank you very much to you, listener. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. See you next, next Thursday.